Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMJ podcast. My name is George Cooper. I'm a medical writer, podcast host and producer, and I'm very pleased to be bringing you a discussion on patient low-density lipoprotein cholesterol management in relation to the treatment and prevention of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Before we get started, a few housekeeping notes. This independent medical education activity is provided by EMJ and was supported by independent funding from Novartis Pharma AG, who have had no input into the content. This educational activity is intended for an audience of non-US healthcare professionals. These materials may include data and information on investigational uses of compounds and drugs that have not yet been approved by regulatory authorities. I am delighted to introduce Professor Mikhail Vrablik, who is a Professor of Internal Medicine at the First Faculty of Medicine, Charles University in Prague, who is going to offer us his perspectives on the current treatments and intervention of LDLC management, the current guidelines around LDLC treatment, and also offer his recommendations for better patient outcomes. Mikhail, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me and good afternoon to everyone. We have a broad range of listeners who use this podcast as a source of medical education, ranging from physicians to nurses to medical students. So let's start with the basics. What is low-density lipoprotein cholesterol, or LDLC, and how can it lead to atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and how can this in turn cause a myocardial infarction? Actually, LDL cholesterol is the one that's bound to LDL particles in the blood. So it's a form of blood cholesterol. It's a transport system for getting cholesterol from one place in the body to another through the bloodstream. And as cholesterol is not water-soluble, so it always needs to be associated with other components in kind of a truck or lorry that's called lipoprotein. And these lipoproteins of low density and cholesterol that's bound to them is particularly dangerous for our arterial wall because it gets absorbed to the arterial wall. It gets trapped there. And it is, let's say, the fundament and the starting point, this accumulation of this cholesterol of atherosclerotic vascular disease, which is killer number one in the developed world currently. With this in mind, what is considered a healthy level of LDLC? George, frankly speaking, there's nothing like a healthy level of LDLC because we are learning through clinical trials and interventions to lower LDLC that uh, we still do benefit once we lower LDLC even more. So there might be the future where we consider zero LDLC as the healthiest level. Of course, I'm this is just a joke, but uh, frankly speaking, we understand that uh, what is healthy might be around very low levels, which is below one millimolar per liter, uh, while the population average in different countries is between three and four. So we are three to four times higher than the optimal level, which hasn't been firmly established yet. So generally speaking, the lower the LDLC, the better. Yeah, you're very much right. <laughs> so as it leads to um, you know, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease for all the reasons that you just mentioned, so what are the other risk factors that are associated with developing these diseases other than high levels of LDLC? Well, perhaps it should be mentioned that... Uh... A group of experts around European Atherosclerosis Society have proposed a very nice 
stratification of risk factors, and they entitled LDLC the primary role in developing of this vascular disease, calling it the only causal risk factor, while the other risk factors have been named as enhancers. So basically, smoking, high blood pressure, diabetes, sedentary lifestyle, and others are just facilitators of the harmful effect of LDLC, which is the the only and the most important causal risk factor. So uh, I'm really delighted that today's podcast is devoted to this principal risk. As we know, heart disease is often called the silent killer, as sadly for a lot of patients, they only find out that they have atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease once it's already too late. And so I'm just wondering, with this in mind, how often should patients that are high risk, um, for example, those that are slightly older, have high blood pressure or are smokers, all the reasons that, um, that you just pointed out, how often should these patients be having their LDLC levels checked? All of these, but not only the people you called, but basically the entire population should aim at knowing their LDLC levels as one of the basic health information. This is the same, and this holds true also for blood pressure and uh, uh, knowing what optimal body weight is. And this should be part of health compulsory literacy. So basically, once you don't know the level, you should have it measured. And then the frequency of repeated tests is dictated by whether your level is optimal or not. If it's not optimal, it must be kind of modified. I'm not saying treated because not everybody requires proper pharmacological treatment, but it should definitely be modified and followed until you reach the optimal level. And then I would say that annual checkup is uh, something that everybody uh, should follow. But basically uh, this holds true only for those who have optimal levels of LDLC. Until then, much more frequent checks are requested. It essentially highlights the need for medical education such as this. So patients, people at home know that you need to know these measurements and you know keep them at that optimal level. And as we know, there are lots of common pharmaceutical treatments that can bring down those LDLC levels. But I just wanted to ask you, what are the preventative measures that we can recommend patients do at home in order to keep those LDLC levels in check? Well, basically, I think that not only LDLC levels, as you know, I was already commenting, it's a principal risk factor, but basically a healthy lifestyle impacts on all the known and even unknown risk factors of vascular disease. So basically healthy lifestyle is a principle that we all should aim adopting as early in life as possible. Uh, the best would be that everybody lives healthy lifestyle from birth on. But, you know, I, I know that this is just a fairy tale. Uh, on the other hand, that would really help very much because the earlier we reach the desirable levels of risk factors, which is not only very low level of LDLC, but optimal blood pressure, zero cigarettes, and uh, very low level or very low amount of animal fat in our diets, etc., etc. So the earlier we embark on this healthy lifestyle that leads to this modification of risk factors, the better outcome. So basically, I think that everybody can modify uh, her or his cardiovascular risk by adopting very I would say very well known changes in their lifestyle. So basically moving at least 30 minutes a day, eating diet that is very similar in the composition and in the 
let's say, amount or, or in the quantity to uh, the diet that is typically consumed around the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, of course, zero smoking. So these are very simple principles. And I also believe that they have been communicated for quite some time. So there's nothing new, but don't expect me to basically comment on uh, some miraculous new findings because there's really nothing brand new in this uh, area. But it is still true that it's very, very powerful in modification of cardiovascular risk. Let's talk about some treatments now. So if you please, may you talk me through some of the most common treatments for patients with high LDLC? Everybody now knows about statins, you know, the inhibitors of cholesterol production in the liver, which is very effective therapy, unfortunately, with very bad reputation. And perhaps you shall tell me why this bad reputation is, because basically I don't know it. Uh, statins belong to the safest and uh, very long-used drugs. So basically, I don't really know why there's such a reluctance and uh, such uh, adverse attitude to statins because they really don't deserve it. Uh, up to 10% of users of statins actually develop some side effects and 99.9% .9 of these side effects are fully reversible by changing a statin, adjusting the dose or any other manipulation. So uh, yeah, statins are very powerful. They do prevent death. They do reduce the risk of myocardial infarction by one half, but unfortunately their reputation is bad. So hopefully this podcast will help to improve it. I understand that uh, many people who take statins complain of tiredness, muscle aching, but it's important to remember that these are all symptoms of essentially just getting older, such as a lot of you know the patients that have these cardiovascular diseases sometimes do. So yeah, it's, it's, I feel like it's important to, to tackle these kind of common misconceptions around statins and, and highlight you know, the value that they bring to treating these disease areas. What's your experience on prescribing azetamibe? Have you found that it has some benefits over statins? Azetamibe is a very powerful tool when used with statins because it inhibits absorption of cholesterol in the gut. Uh, but this inhibition can be very easily overcome by increased production of cholesterol in the liver cell. So once you don't use a statin with azetamibe, the effect is rather minimum. While when you combine the two approaches, you get very nice additional 20% LDLC reduction on top of what has been achieved with a statin. So uh, azetimibe is a fantastic drug when used with a statin. It's very well tolerated. Basically, it gives very rarely any side effects to anybody. Uh, maybe it's related also to its mode of action that's limited to the gut because there's very little systemic exposure of azetimibe, less than 5% of the dose can be detected in the bloodstream. So, so it's very safe and very powerful drug. Excellent. Is it then routinely prescribed with statins or is it for the patients that have higher levels, the, the more at-risk patients, or do they routinely get prescribed together? Well, definitely, it's recommended by the guidelines, so uh, it's well supported by the evidence. I think that currently most physicians think about statins uh, and not that frequently about enhancing the effect of statins with azetimibe, but it's getting much better and the penetration of statins into clinical practice has improved tremendously over the last five years. That's a relief to hear. And there's another class of drugs that I wanted to quickly ask you about, which is antiproprotein convertase subtilisin, or 
Kexin type 9 monoclonal antibodies. I mean, how frequently are these prescribed and how effective have you found them to be? Well, these are miraculous drugs. Despite being administered subcutaneously with injections, they are also loved by our patients because they're very well tolerated. So basically, they don't give uh, virtually any important side effects except for some minor side injection reactions. But uh, basically, these are fantastic drugs that very effectively lower LDLC by another 50% on top of what statin and ezetimibe can do. And patients can administer these drugs themselves at home every uh, two to four weeks. So it's also very comfortable. Uh, however, these drugs as monoclonal antibodies, uh, they are pretty expensive, much more than statins and acetamide together. So this is uh, a limit that basically we all encounter no matter which European country you live in, because we do have different sets of reimbursement criteria. Uh, none of the healthcare systems can afford to give these expensive medications to everyone. So this is the major limitation of uh, their more broader use, because I believe that uh, shouldn't we have these regulations, you would definitely offer the, ter- the therapy to much wider spectrum of our patients. And the fact that it's administered at such vast intervals will help with patient adherence and so on. People aren't going to be forgetting to take their pills and so on. So you'd think it would be beneficial. And let's hope that the guidelines state that, you know, they can be more readily available and and tackle some of these reimbursement issues. I just quickly, while we're talking about um, pharmacological interventions, I wanted to ask your opinion on the area of nutraceuticals or dietary supplements that are used as alternatives or alongside pharmaceutical drugs in order to help lower. LDLC. Have you any clinical experience using these? Do you suggest that patients look into this? What's your opinion on this on this field of dietary supplements and, and natural alternatives? Well, it's quite interesting that compared to very effective and uh, I would say purified medicines in form of statins, uh, nutraceuticals and natural approach to management of dyslipidemia has gained much more attention recently. And uh, frankly speaking, I don't know why most people prefer something more natural than the chemical compounds in regular tablets, because we must bear in mind that basically tablets are being produced as a result of our knowledge, what the what Mother Nature is offering us. And basically we only purify and con- let's say make uh, the, the active substances more concentrated in the pharmacological approaches in tablets. So basically, nutraceuticals can can be useful as a bridge between lifestyle and the regular pharmacotherapy. So we do offer them to low-risk individuals with greater than optimal levels of LDLC because they do they do lower LDLC, but their efficacy is uh, by far much lower than efficacy of statins or additional drug approaches. So they are definitely not enough in vast majority of patients. But nutraceuticals are being supported with solid evidence. So I would say that, yes, we do use them quite successfully in low-risk individuals uh, who are not very far from their goal LDLC levels. I see. So they, in essence, can be used as a sort of intermediate between lifestyle changes and pharmaceutical interventions. 
it makes it makes a lot of sense and um yeah i suppose if they if they're natural and they're not causing you discomfort by side effects then I, I suppose there can't be much harm as long as you're you know buying the the ones of good quality and they're being recommended by your your healthcare professional Following a myocardial infarction, patient non-adherence to treatments and, and lifestyle interventions is, is an issue. With your patients, how do you manage non-adherence? I think it's an increasing problem. And we've already commented the bad reputation of statins, which is undeserved, but unfortunately present. And that modifies the long-term adherence to therapy. And uh, particularly in the field of cardiovascular prevention, where we are dealing with risk factors that mostly don't give their carriers any visible or uh, any effects or any, any troubles that they basically feel. So they are asymptomatic. And uh, treatment of an asymptomatic condition is very difficult to, uh, to be adopted and accepted by the patients, particularly once we mean it for good, once we really, once we start the medication, we instruct our patients that they should be taking it lifelong. And this is a very difficult concept to uh, understand for many and to, to accept for many. Uh, thus, it's not surprising that statin users belong to the worst adherers, if you wish, uh, once we compare it to other medication groups. And uh, even with, uh, within the groups of post-MI patients, patients who already survived myocardial infarction, uh, some data, some studies suggest that 50% of these people stop taking their statin medication within two years after the index event, which is, which is horrible. So non-adherence is uh, a factor that limits the efficacy and final outcomes of all the preventative measures to a large extent. I understand. If, if you have toothache, there's a, a constant pain there and you, and you seek, you go to your dentist and seek treatment. But if you're not feeling any discomfort or any symptoms from it, other than perhaps a slight bit of breathlessness, then it must be very hard to take these drugs and just think you may just sort of slip into a, a sense of, you know, what's the point? What other obstacles do you feel are stopping patients from reaching their LDLC targets? Do you feel like there are knowledge gaps, difficulty in changing lifestyles, the Western diets? Are there any things that patients should be looking out for? Well, George, I think it's a combination of all of the factors you, you called. And also it's the fact that, yes, we do have potent pharmacological approaches that can bring to goal LDLC levels virtually everybody. But in the highest risk stratum, where we require very low levels of LDLC, sometimes even below one millimolar per liter, it is difficult to, to bring the people there with conventional, if you wish, oral therapy combination of a statin and azetimibe might have maximum capacity, maximum LDL-C lowering efficacy of, let's say, 70% in very good responders. And it's not enough for, for those highest risk patients. So basically, we really need to employ even the most modern therapies like monoclonal antibodies. And currently, we have additional approaches to tackle PCSK9 to uh, get LDL-C farther down. But without these therapies, we simply don't have enough potency of currently available drugs that can bring people to, to their goals. So it's just additional, additional factor on top of what you've already mentioned. 
national and international guidelines make recommendations relating to the initiation of lipid lowering therapy based on calculations of cardiovascular disease risk rather than lipid profile alone. Therefore, some patients may slip through the treatment net if their CVD risk is calculated as low in certain areas. I just wanted to ask you, how do we ensure that we're reaching patients with high LDLC, but an overall lower risk of CVD, for, for example, slightly younger patients? And do you find that this is potentially an issue? It might really be an issue because uh, you're also talking about patients with inherited higher levels of LDLC due to genetic condition. And we should also mention that a uh, vast majority of increased cholesterol levels in uh, our blood is a combination of genetic equipment, which is, let's say, contributing by one half, and uh, lifestyle factors, which is the other half of the resulting final LDLC level. And uh, most of us actually carry some LDLC increasing genetic information. And in some of us, it's very strong. And uh, therefore, the ratio between lifestyle and genetic contribution is shifted towards the genetic contribution. I'm talking about patients with family hypercholesterolemia, whose levels of LDLC are typically very high from birth. And these people, if unrecognized, are in danger of very early manifestation of heart disease. So uh, you're very much right that we should definitely try to screen lipid levels very early in life. Uh, like in Czechia, which is my home place, we have universal screening at the, the age of 18, where everybody uh, should have uh, the, her or his LDLC levels measured. And in affected families with known history of either premature heart disease or very high lipid levels, we screen all kids at the age of five. So yes, it's a matter of screening. Universal screening of uh, lipid levels should be a standard part of preventative measures implemented by all healthcare systems. So I just wanted to ask, do you think that sometimes within healthcare systems, there can be a focus on acute care rather than long-term prevention of LDLC? And how do you think that we can tackle this? Well, you're very much right. None of the healthcare systems that I have been acquainted with really looks into long-term health of populations. It's always short-term or at best medium-term outlooks, but definitely not looking, let's say, decades ahead of our time, which is definitely something that we should consider when talking about cardiovascular disease prevention, because atherosclerosis is a disease that is developing over four, five, six, seven decades. And uh, what you do today, therefore, might translate into benefit in a quarter of a century. And none of the managers of healthcare system really thinks about such a distant future because their term typically ends much earlier. So unfortunately, there's much more focus on acute care because this is something that's going to also cost and that's going to modify the outcomes today or tomorrow. But prevention is a long-term run. And unfortunately, the regulators and payers tend really to plan 
in much, much shorter frames. I wanted to ask you quickly about where you see the, the future of this field of medicine going. Wearable technology is readily available now that allows constant monitoring of, of heart rates and your ECG. You've got fields such as liquid biopsy just seemingly around the corner that allow you know real-time continuous analysis. Do you see there to be a future whereby everyone's cholesterol level is constantly being monitored and you'll be notified once you start reaching those levels without the need to have to go and visit your doctor and have a checkup? Where, where do you see the future of, of this field of medicine going? Well, that, that sounds really like a sci-fi future, uh, but, uh, but yes, we're, we're getting, I wouldn't say that close, like continuous monitoring of your metabolic parameters that would be reported to central hub and you'll be alerted whenever your cholesterol increases by 10%. That's, that's uh, really something that I can't imagine, though it, it might have health consequences because fluctuation of metabolic levels and it's very well known and studied for glucose but it seems that the same principle the day-to-day or hour-to-hour variability of cholesterol levels is something that might determine prognosis but we are only slowly learning about that so so basically i think yes that definitely would help what is much closer is, uh, let's say, using the digitalization in favor of uh, getting the information and, let's say, compiling all the important information at one place so that it's available to everyone who contributes to the management of cardiovascular risk. And uh, I know that in the UK, but even elsewhere, there are attempts, at least regional attempts, to really consolidate all the healthcare information so that the risk profile of an individual can be determined with much better precision, knowing the lab levels, knowing the levels of uh, blood pressure and other important data, everything combined in one database. So I think that the automation and the digitalization is something that is much closer than the future that you have outlined, uh, but uh, it will also help to improve uh, the outcomes because basically nowadays we struggle to learn what the levels of LDLC were a year ago or two years ago, though the patient is sure it was assessed, but we don't, we, we can't get to to know the data. So basically, I think that data management and data use uh, and much better accessibility will impact on cardiovascular prevention very, very soon. Good to hear. So maybe not the distant utopian Blade Runner future that I previously outlined, but it's good to know that the, the data management is within our grasp, perhaps. And just finally, Mikhail, do you feel like there needs to be uh, more of a focus on preventative measures on lowering LDLC and how do you think medical education such as this podcast can fit into this? Could wide-scale educational programs for both physicians and the general public and patients be, be the answer or at least help in this area? George, I, I, you know, I'm a prevention enthusiast, so <laughs> I, I, I strongly believe prevention is the way to go because now we can treat a lot of diseases, but unfortunately we are extending life years that are being spent with disease. So people are not healthy anymore, but they survive their heart attacks, but they do have symptoms, they do have limitations, and they can't enjoy the lives as they could. 
shouldn't they have avoided their heart attacks? And that's that, that's the goal where which I see to extend not only the overall lifespan, but also extend life years spent in health, in good condition. That's the ultimate goal of prevention. So I think that future is in focusing not only on those who are at very high risk because they have already survived a vascular event. And this is our focus nowadays so that we really treat them well to prevent additional events. But I think that we shall go beyond this and basically focus on those who are in so-called primary prevention. But uh, when you carry risk factors, but you haven't had an, an event yet. So that's the, that's the future. And uh, we already mentioned the data and data is everything. So basically, we should know about risk profiles of everybody and it should be available to every healthcare professional in the future. So I think we would be able to identify higher risk individual easily at any encounter with healthcare system. And that would help to individually educate, individually approach these people. And the second level is, of course, the population level. And I think that there are very good examples from the past and not very recent past, actually. In Finland, in the 70s, cardiovascular mortality was highest in the world. And they were so worried about that, that they embarked on complex whole population program where many stakeholders, producers of food, governmental officials, non-governmental organizations, and of course, healthcare professionals, all united. And what they did, they lowered the risk to a level which is nowadays the same as in France, which is, I would say, exemplary country with very low levels of cardiovascular deaths. So it is possible, but not through uh, an action of a single stakeholder. It must be comprehensive, complex activity that is being stimulated from many different angles. But, but this is also where I see the future. So individualized approach to every high-risk individual because we would identify them early. And then the population approach involving many different stakeholders. And you mentioned the that France have among the lowest rates of um, cardiovascular disease in the world. And I remember learning about it when I was studying biomedical science, that it was called the French conundrum or something similar, yeah. whereby they're known to have uh, diets that are very, very high in saturated fats, high, high levels of alcohol consumption, high, high levels of smoking. And yet, for some reason, the, the levels of heart disease just seem to be very low. Do you have a take on this very quickly uh, or an explanation, perhaps? On the other hand, George, their lifestyle is, is very relaxed in some areas, <laughs> particularly. So maybe the psychosocial stress level is something that plays a role. And uh, secondly, their overall dietary pattern is rather healthy because mm. the French eat lots of vegetables and lots of fruit uh, and, and overall their diet, except for having... Yeah, you're right. More of saturated fat. Butter is the most favorite part of their cuisine. But other than that, I would say that the overall uh, composition of their diet is, is very, very healthy. And also, uh, they do not overeat. So you, you don't see very many obese French 
You've heard it from uh, the expert himself. High levels of fruit and vegetables, Mediterranean diet, and, and the old game of Patonk, and you're, you're well on your way. <laughs> Professor <laughs> Mikhail Vrablik, thank you so much for your time and for chatting to us today. George, thank you very much for the invitation, and uh, I wish everyone very good health and very low levels of LDLC. Thank you. Until next time. And that concludes today's discussion. Thank you very much to Professor Mikhail Vrablik for joining us today and sharing his insights around low-density lipoprotein cholesterol management. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We release a new episode every Friday, as well as plenty of bonus episodes like this one. Until next time, take care and goodbye for now. Thank you very much.